0: Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I am Hawk Carlisle, the President and CEO of the National Defense Industrial Association, and welcome again to Suffolk. It's wonderful to have you all here. It is my distinct honor and privilege to introduce our keynote speaker for today. I've had the good fortune to know the Honorable Miss Ellen Lord for a long time, and she is truly a leader in our United States military, and she is the ultimate, in my opinion, advocate for the warfighter. Uh, she serves the Under Secretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, and everyone knows in that capacity she covers the spectrum. She was also the last Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics Under Secretary for the United States Air for the United States Military and Office of Secretary of Defense. Uh, Miss Lord comes from Textron, 30 years in the defense. I won't go into her bi- biography. She told me not to, so I'll make this fairly quick. She did mention that she's outside the Pentagon, so she's really in a good mood. So any day outside of the Pentagon's a great day. Uh, and I won't put too much pressure on her, but I will say that uh, between her and Dr. Michael Griffin, I truly believe we're at a point uh, where we can solve the valley of death, where that transition of technology to the warfighter and the acquisition and sustainment of that over time will happen quicker and stay inside our adversaries as we go forward. So with nothing more and to keep it short, ma'am, it's great to have you here.
1: Thanks, Hawk, appreciate it. So thank you, Hawk, for the kind introduction. Good morning. Um, Tony, Jim, thank you very much for having me here today. I think gatherings like SOFIC are really important. They're bringing together government, industry, academia, and our international partners. So I was particularly excited this was an international partner um, year for SOFIC. This conference is occurring as great changes are taking place in the defense acquisition world. It's been almost four months now since we have stood up the new acquisition and sustainment organization that was mandated by Congress. If you recall, Congress said for multiple years that DOD needed to get faster, needed to simplify the acquisition process, and needed to deliver a better value to the taxpayer. And the conversation went on for multiple years without a significant response um, from the Pentagon. So Congress does what Congress does and passed a number of laws. So we lost the decision space in terms of how we were going to reorganize, and we were told how to. However, I think it's a positive thing, because AT&L was bifurcated into acquisition and sustainment. And sustainment, frankly, in the past, has not gotten the emphasis it needs to. 70 cents on the dollar. Um, most procurements go towards um, sustainment over the life cycle so acquisition and sustainment would be one office and then research and engineering the other. The idea being that we need to get the risk out of our weapon systems prior to entering the acquisition process. So Dr. Mike Griffin comes with an incredible background and a lot of energy to the team and his mandate is to prototyping and experimenting, do a lot of what SOCOM and the soft community does very well, is get things out there, fail fast, learn from it, continue to upgrade capability. Uh, so Mike and the team are focused on 10 technology domains and they will be reaching out to all of you, I think, in the near future. So what else has changed and makes this a unique, opportune environment for us? President Trump signed an omnibus spending bill in March, and it funds the government at $700 billion for defense, really a landmark um, amount of money. So we have that for the remainder of this year, and the omnibus bill along with a two-year budget agreement, um, really provides us the budgetary continuity that we need to move out and work with industry to make a significant improvement in getting capability downrange. And I think these have been eight to ten very tough years for the defense industrial base. The demand signal has been up and down because funding has been so uncertain, so what What we want to do is provide continuity for industry so that they understand that we will be able to procure. We also want to make sure that Wall Street looks at the defense industrial base as a place where they want to invest money because there's going to be a good return on that investment as we not only equip the force here but work with our international partners and allies. If you have not already, already read the National Defense Strategy, I very, very strongly suggest you do so. In it, Secretary Mattis lays out his three lines of effort. And one of the things that makes Secretary Mattis, in my opinion, the best brand in Washington and a very, very effective leader is that he is crystal clear in terms of what his objectives are and what we will do and what we won't do. So, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about Secretary Mattis's three lines of effort and what my priorities in acquisition and sustainment are nested under those. Secretary Mattis's first line of effort is to restore military readiness as we build a more lethal force. Make no doubt about it. Our Defense Department dollars are to be focused on getting capability downrange to the warfighter as soon as possible. We are not going to take our dollars and build museums or develop capability um, that's non-defense related um, internationally. We have other government organizations that are well suited and funded to do that. We are about lethality. We also need to make sure that we're ready to fight tonight. So one of the things you will hear Secretary Mattis talk about continuously is readiness. And the entire National Defense Strategy has the framework of readiness and modernization. So what we need to do is obligate those dollars we have, get them on contract, so that we are ready now and we buy opportunity space to modernize as we move forward. And that's really what Dr. Griffin in research and engineering is focused on, is how do we modernize. In the National Defense Strategy, it very clearly lays out 10 technology domains that R&E will focus on. So, what are the acquisition and sustainment objectives that nest under lethality and readiness? The number one is F-35. This is my key objective as I'm the Milestone Decision Authority for F-35. We have three lines of effort within F-35. We have production, we have development, and we have sustainment. In the production side of things, we need to drive efficiency and cost effectiveness. So there is enormous opportunity with Lockheed Martin and our industrial partners. Lockheed Martin is leaning forward. I am personally working with Marilyn Houston on making sure that we deliver capability on time, on quality, at the best possible cost. So much more to come on F-35. In terms of F-35 development, we, with the Joint Strike Fighter, have the greatest fighter aircraft in the world today. However, in order to ensure that in 2025, we still have the greatest fighter aircraft. We need to undergo a whole series of technology upgrades. A lot of it software, some of it hardware. We are right now laying out the sprints to get that done, and we're looking at doing business a little bit differently with much more agile teams, quickly turning sprints, delivering capability. Third, on F-35, we're looking at sustainment. Right now, We do not have the aircraft availability that we need, and part of that is due to the fact we started producing aircraft very early on and said we would spiral in upgrades. But we need to improve availability and we also need to get the cost per flight hour down. Not only so that we can make the most use of our defense budget dollars, but so that our international partners um, and FMS customers can as well. So, an enormous amount of focus on sustainability and leveraging big data analytics, um, all of the tools we have that are modern that we need to transition into this program very shortly. The second key objective we have in acquisition and sustainment, underneath lethality and readiness, is ensuring the nuclear enterprise is enabled. Right now, we have key development programs for each of the three legs of the nuclear triad. We have industry highly engaged, we're seeing some great output. However, we are dependent on a somewhat aging, atrophying, nuclear infrastructure to give us the warheads we need. So we are partnered with the Department of Energy and NSA to make sure that infrastructure is bolstered so that we have the plutonium pits, we have the uranium, we have the lithium we need to enable us to have the weapons we require in the future. And there's an incredible partnership, I think, going on there um, with Lisa Gordon Haggerty and other within NSA, we have a partnership um, that's really been brought to new levels so I have very high expectations for our success there. So, Secretary Mattis's line of effort number two is strengthening alliances and partnerships. History is very clear. Nations with strong allies thrive while those without them decline. Interoperability underpins this line of effort as it is a priority for operational concepts, modular force elements, communications, information sharing, and weapon systems. To support our coalition partners, the DOD must focus on communication to interoperability from the strategic level all the way to the tactical edge along with many other issues. But I just want to point out that the Department is facilitating the drive to DOD interoperability in many communications, networks, and software areas, including software-intensive programs, third-party software, tactical data links, position, navigation, and timing, wideband communications analysis of alternatives. And common data links. Cybersecurity looms very, very large in this domain and is something the department is spending much more time on. And we will continue to partner with our international allies and partners to make sure we ensure cybersecurity. Our third focus area in acquisition and sustainment is to promote allied readiness by enhancing military capacity through targeted improvements in foreign military sales. And I will say this is something that hits pretty close to home with me, having been in industry for 33 years and going to international air shows talking with international partners and allies who wanted U.S. technology because they believed it was the premier technology, but we could not sell it to them because it was taking so long to get through the interagency process. Um, quite often I would hear stories of we're going to go with the Russian alternative, we're going to go with the Chinese alternative because we know we can get it quickly. We know that it might fail. Eighty to of the time, but we will have something to work with. That's a missed opportunity for the U.S. and we're going to make sure we do everything possible to improve upon that. So we're also taking action to significantly reduce the procurement administrative lead time in areas other than just licenses. So, we're focused on reducing the amount of data we require and use as well as the amount of time it takes for industry to respond to requests. This is a partnership and we both need to lean forward to speed things up. Our efforts are in three areas. First, pilot authority. We have initiated a variety of pilot initiatives where we are leveraging statutory authority as well as existing inherent flexibilities. I will tell you one thing that was a little bit of a surprise to me coming into this job was the amount of time I would spend with Congress. This has actually been a very productive time because I have both staffers and members continuously asking me, what authorities do you need that you do not have? What do you need us to stop requiring of you to be able to develop, to deliver capability to the warfighter? It's an ongoing dialogue and it's a very, very healthy dialogue. Congress has given us pilot authority in Section 830 of the FY17 NDAA to use reduced cost and pricing data. Our inherent flexibilities allow us to be creative in our negotiations, like using fixed-price incentive contracts, which allows the government to take measured pricing risk, including proactively inserting FMS options in US contracts. So what does all of this mean? We can tailor contracts to help us get on contract quickly. What we are doing now as we issue new domestic contracts is inserting language for the future that will address international sales. So that when we have an international partner who wants to buy a U.S. system, we do not need to spend weeks and months writing another CLIN in to allow us to do that international sale. We want to basically have a system where we can fill in the blank with the country and the price and any unique requirements. We additionally are talking with the engineering community to make sure as we develop new products, we are designing in exportability. If we collectively do these things, we will allow ourselves to really increase the number of foreign military sales, and just as importantly, quickly get those customers on contract so that we are competitive in the global global market space. All right, so whenever we can, we are using one year's cost and pricing data and modeling to negotiate future lots. So think base year with a couple options. We have a whole variety of specific programs where we're focused on applying these authorities. Patriot Fire Control System for Romania, Global Hawk for Japan. Sad for Saudi Arabia and TOE for multiple FMS customers. We are talking about taking not just weeks and months, but literally years out of the process. So I'm hoping that you will reach out to SAFIA and DASADEC and Navy IPO and talk to them about how you from an industry point of view can benefit from that and you as international partners can leverage that as well. Secondly, in order to speed up FMS, we're cataloging common FMS customization. So we're cataloging and pricing the most common features that are used to customize a system, whether that be a helicopter or anything else. Once the catalog is established, it will effectively eliminate palt by awarding in 30 days. We are targeting the end of this calendar year to complete the catalog concept and one of the first programs we're looking at is Blackhawk. Third, statutory relief. In FY17 NDAA, language was included requiring all contracts for FMS be firm fixed price. This is significantly slowing a process that we want to speed up. We need to have the flexibility to use the right contract type for the right effort. Furthermore, to the success on the FMS pilots has been the use of FPI contracts. They give us the tailoring necessary. So, we also have helping us with international sales, an approved national security presidential memorandum establishing a new conventional arms transfer policy, something that many of us have been working on for many years. The policy calls for an overhaul of U.S. arms export rules, meant to better align policy with national and economic security interests and to make the export process more streamlined and predictable. The interagency is at work developing whole-of-government implementation plans that lay out the ways and means to meet the objectives of this new policy. Again, Secretary Mattis has really set a new standard for partnership throughout the interagency. Every Thursday morning, he meets with the leader of the State Department and talks about key issues this is unprecedented. We, in our weekly staff meetings with Secretary Mattis, um, and this is another great communications technique where every Tuesday and Thursday morning he sits down with all the under service secretaries, Comptroller Cape and a few others, and we talk about the state of play, what's going on, what's critical in each of our areas, we go around the table and we talk about it. And Secretary Secretary Mattis is very clear clear, when we bump up against something that we cannot solve ourselves, the expectation is that we will come to him and ask him to help us, which he does very, very well. So we have a conduit to go to the different secretaries of different agencies and departments and blow through some of the issues we have. From an acquisition perspective, We are working to ensure the implementation plans position the U.S. government to make timely and competitive offers for U.S. solutions to meet our foreign partners' demands. We will do this by not only taking the steps I've mentioned to ease and speed foreign military sales and contracting, but also by ensuring technology, security, and cooperation measures that make our coalition systems and networks secure from our common adversaries. Think cybersecurity. Early in the process, addressing our partners' joint logistics and training considerations. I don't want to see, as we've all seen many times, Kits, boxes, downrange, with key new equipment that's not being used because there's no video to show the operator how to use it. There's no tech manual to show how it should be employed. There are no spares to replace the broken part. We've got to get better and look at the logistics tail on the front end of these FMS cases, and we're really committed to doing that. We also will continue to support the military departments to design in exportability features as I mentioned earlier. We're going to build on the Defense Exportability Features pilot program. The DEF provides a forum to define and implement coalition interoperability and standards. Okay, moving to Secretary Mattis's third line of effort bring business reforms to the Department of Defense. It's probably no coincidence that the Dep-Sec Def. Pat Shanahan, and I in my role both come from industry. One of the things Secretary Mattis is focused on is making sure that we bring, to the degree possible, commercial business practices to the Pentagon. We obviously have a different user base, we have different constraints, but I can tell you from day one it was clear to me that we have enormous opportunity for improvement. So what are we going to do relative to acquisition and sustainment? We're going to reconfigure the acquisition workforce. Let me give you a couple examples. The one thread that runs through almost everything we do in terms of warfighting systems is software. And although we have what I'll call some silos of excellence throughout DOD in terms of agile and DevOps software development. The preponderance of our engineers and our acquisition professionals, our contracts professionals, think about waterfall and the old way we've done software in the past where we code and code and code and code and and then cross our fingers and test and hope it doesn't all fall apart. It hasn't worked out so well for us. And it's certainly not the contemporary way to develop software. So I'm putting a focus on not only modernizing how we develop software, but how we contract for it. And I don't want to talk about processes with PowerPoint sitting around a conference room table in the Pentagon. What I want to do is focus on those warfighter systems that are critical to us and practice a new way of doing business as we are doing real work. So we're focusing on the F-35. We're taking a look at some of the great work that's been done, for instance, um, in the RCO on B-21, what the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, the Marine Corps have done in pockets of excellence, what's been done here with Special Operations, and we are gathering some of the best and brightest to make sure that we in the government figure out how to capture those modern software practices, how we memorialize that, and how we apply it and train for it. So one of the huge opportunities we have is to train our workforce differently. Coming into the Pentagon, looking at the civilian workforce, it hugely concerned me that we had no small numbers of 30-year employees who essentially had three years' experience 10 times over. They had not been given the opportunity to learn and apply new techniques in the commercial marketplace. And we at the Defense Acquisition University, we're still teaching the same old way, kind of locking people down at Fort Belvoir for four, six, eight weeks, having them read volumes of material, and then going through rather rote, dry kinds of things. Now, DAU has made enormous leaps in the last few years, but I think we can do much better. And what we are doing is capturing best practices where we're doing things like Agile and DevOps, making um, videos where we can have podcasts. Actually talking to the program managers, the engineers, the contracting officers who went and did things creatively, compliantly, used critical thinking to use the authorities they had to do things a little bit differently and roll capability out much more quickly. So one of the things I have done um, with my authorities is to hire a special assistant for software. So I went and the way I did this uh, was to talk to dot and In the past, the operational test and evaluation group has been somewhat feared and shunned by most program offices for a lot of reasons I won't get into. Um, and we had an opportunity with this administration, and we took it. We hired someone who is a former test pilot, who is a software expert, who had been at Carnegie Mellon University at the Software Engineering Institute. And we brought Bob Beeler in to be director of dot and So, we're bringing Bob in at the beginning of programs to talk about how we continuously test. Bob's software background positions him very well to do things smartly. So when I wanted to find a software executive who understood the context of what we do, as well as commercial best practices. I went back to Bob and asked him for a recommendation. And I'm very, very pleased that we were able to get Jeff Bowling to come and join us, uh, background in the Air Force, has been at CMU in the Software Engineering um, Institute as the CTO, and now he's working with us focusing primarily on F-35, but a number of other items as well. So he's looking across DOD and seeing where we've done software right, where we've taken the latest best practices and employed them to get a result that delivered capability to the warfighter quickly. And what we're doing is we're looking at F-35 and moving from waterfall to DevOps in order to take our development program, C2D2, and do things a little bit differently. And Lockheed Martin is with us on this journey. They're doing the same thing. So what are we going to do? We are going to memorialize how we go about doing this in small modules at DAU, and then we're going to teach the workforce how we went about it. So what I'm looking for is experiential learning on real programs, not only talking about the good things that we do, but the things that didn't work out so well. Because one of our opportunities is to understand what we tried and failed. Why did it fail? How do we do things differently? And how do we learn from those failures? If we don't talk about our failures, We won't learn from them. And this is one of the things I spend a bit of time chatting with my friends on the Hill about. Um, We're very, very good at dragging acquisition professionals and program managers up to the Hill and putting the TV lights on them and grilling them about what did not go well in a program. We don't do the same thing when we have incredible successes. And I think we need equal time to share those successes. And we're getting a lot of support to do that. I don't want to build a culture where people are conflict averse, where they are defaulting to full DOD 5000 because it's the safe way to do it and because there's less chance of getting kind of your um, program or your name out there in the public. We need to make sure that we are really motivating and rewarding people to do things differently, to be creatively compliant. So another thing we're doing to reconfigure the acquisition workforce is that I would like to see many, many more rotational programs with industry and academia. Again, we really have pockets of excellence where this has been done. Probably DARPA is one of the best examples where we have people rotating in and out two, three years at a time. We need to do more of this on the acquisition and sustainment side, so we're working hard with some of the industry associations to get some more programs going. One of the things I've been doing is taking 10 or so people from the Pentagon with me to meet with NDIA, AIA, and PSC, the Professional Services Council, quarterly to talk about what's on industry's mind, what do we need to pay attention to, and then to allow us to talk about where we think there's opportunity, and out of some of these meetings came a rotational program um, that we're going to kick off later this year. So I really encourage industry um, to participate in that. I think Softworks has done a great job here piloting that kind of concept um, with a huge benefit for it. But again, I think it's important for industry to use your industry associations as your advocate for what you need. Because I can respond to individual companies to a degree, but if I have 20 small, mid-sized, large companies come through an industry association with a concern, that's very compelling and allows me to focus more resources on addressing whatever the issue is. Okay. The reorganization is another focus area of mine, at and reorganization. So February 1, the law went into place and we had Secretary Mattis sign out a memo that said we would come back on June 1 with a new organization. So Mike Griffin and I have been working on this to bifurcate the organization, make sure that we're not leaving any gaps, that we are not ex- exacerbating a valley of death, but actually making sure we don't have one. We just um, met earlier this week with the DepSecDef, laid down what everything's looking like, and we have a package going into coordination, a process that I learned about once I went into the Pentagon. I think snail mail, um, desk to desk, a lot of time involved. So we're doing something different. We're going to try to cord in three days, which is huge. Um, So we're going to coordinate that, and then we're going to sign it out and we're all going to get going so we can begin to work a little bit more on programs and issues versus internal reorganizations. Then probably the most important thing I'm spending my time on, the most critical priority, is implementing acquisition reform. So, as we've reorganized, we're not just talking about boxes and the lines that connect the boxes, we're talking about a different way of doing business. We're reshaping ANS, Acquisition and Sustainment, as a policy and governance organization that enables the services and their agencies, and agencies, to carry out their business and be successful with a minimum of interference from OSD. So, what we've done is delegated Milestone Decision Authority for the majority of major defense acquisition programs back to the services. The ones that remain at OSD um, with me as the Milestone Decision Authority are joint programs or programs that have had tortured execution, maybe have gone through a Nun mccurdy that type of thing. So F-35, for instance, is still with me. OCX, Aqua, um, programs like that. So what does this mean to the military service acquisition executives? So, Hondo Gertz at the Navy. So, you might find it amusing that yesterday, late in the afternoon, I was sitting in the DepSecDefs conference room um, with Hondo pitching a two-aircraft carrier buy, um, which is a little bit different than what happened down here at SOCOM. He's doing an awesome job. Um, But So, Hondo's um, busy with the Navy, Will Roper with the Air Force, and Bruce Jetty with the Army. Again, it is um, no accident that the service acquisition executives are all individuals who have had a lot of experience running acquisition programs in non-traditional ways. What we're trying to do is make sure that no longer do we have DOD 5000 as the norm and DIUX and SCO and Rapid Capabilities Office and JIDO and all of these satellite organizations working on the fringes. We want to bring all these flexibilities and capabilities to the mainstream and have a list of different ways to to go about acquiring weapon systems, business systems, anything it might be that allows us to do it the fastest way possible, the lowest cost way possible, bringing the most capability. So what we're doing is developing policy a little bit differently. Um, We are putting out minimum guidance and allowing the services and research and engineering to pilot authorities, assessing what happened, and then writing the policy. What we're trying to do is come up with what I'm calling an Agile Acquisition Framework, on one page have all of the acquisition authorities that Congress has given us, and then lined up right next to it all the different contract vehicles you can use to execute those acquisition authorities. Additionally, having examples of how those different authorities and contract types have been appropriately and effectively used and examples of when they were not appropriately used and why. We're also shifting towards capability portfolio management. So again, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition, who's Kevin Fahey now, who had a long civilian career within the Army. Instead of Kevin and his team looking over the shoulder of the service acquisition executives, program managers, contract professionals, what we're spending more of our time doing is looking across a portfolio and understanding what we have for NC three capability, you know command control of our nuclear um, assets, what we're doing is looking at where we have holes there. We're looking at where we have fragility in our defense industrial base. We also are focusing more on data. I tell my team that opinions are very interesting but often irrelevant. What I need is the data. We need to be a data-driven organization so that when we draw a conclusion, when we make a recommendation, The data set, the fact set is there to back it up. We have, again, enormous opportunity to leverage all of the data and information that we have within the Pentagon to really do some artificial intelligence, some machine learning, um, to draw better conclusions from what we're doing. So you will see a lot of focus on going back to the data, gathering the data, making sure that disparate groups across DOD have access to one another's data. We also are focusing more on sustainment, as I mentioned earlier, so I've taken Two different groups, two Assistant Secretary of Defenses, merged them into one. We used to have um, Logistics and Material Readiness, LMNR, and we had EI and E, Environment Installations and Energy. I've collapsed those two ASDs into one group and called them sustainment. One of the things I found coming to the Pentagon was I couldn't understand what a lot of the names meant um, and we're trying to be a lot more intuitive um, about how we name things. So there's a lot of policy and process work required to make this shift. And it's especially a cultural shift. So what we, again, are talking about is valuing critical thinking. I think we've worked a lot of critical thinking out of the system, and the expectation is we allow individuals to understand what all the different authorities are, what all the contract types are, and then do the critical thinking to figure out what's the shortest path to your objective. We also want to take smart risks, so I've talked a lot about we're not going to make an example out of someone when they do something incorrectly. We've had a couple hiccups with other transaction authorities recently. Well, you know what, we're going to learn from that. Anybody can make a mistake once, you know, as long as we're not doing anything illegal or immoral, we're going to keep going and learn from it. We're also trying to create this culture of creative compliance, thinking critically about how to go about things. We're also trying to gather these examples of what works. This morning I had the opportunity to walk around and talk to a number of individuals, um, had some great example um, at Softworks of some apps that are being developed to try to get logistical supplies downrange quickly working with DLA and Transcom. Um, That's a great example of using an intern and using a software engineer listening to the demand signal from the operator, from the logistics community, and coming up with a solution that's smart and easy. What I asked that team to do was to call DAU, and I want to capture what they're doing and follow their progress so people can see what right looks like, how we need to do these types of things. So again, working very, very closely with Congress and it turns out that there are many authorities in the FY 16, 17 and 18 NDAAs that we have not embraced. We're still getting going on 18, but 16 and 17, there's opportunity out there to use um, different authorities. The one that I'm most excited about is something called middle-tier acquisition. What this is, is rapid- rapid prototyping and rapid fielding. This actually um, was an authority that was provided in Section 804 of the FY16 NDAA. What I did was sign out an interim policy last month to allow the military services and R&E to start using this authority. The key to it is that you don't have to go through the JSIDS process. The idea is that there might be commercial technology out there that's very close to being fieldable. There might be a system out there that just takes a minor modification. The services and R&E can get a thumbs up from their senior management to move forward, and they can move to field things very quickly with a minimum of reviews and rigor. They have to demonstrate capability, their service has to be comfortable that it's smart risks, but again, this is putting a lot more authority back to the military services to the service acquisition executives. So what do we need to do? We need to get the word out about how to use this, and one of the things about sitting in the Pentagon is you sometimes forget what effective communication is, and although we sent out the proverbial memo with direction on this, um, 99% of the Department of Defense does not understand it exists or how to use it. So what we're doing, again, is rolling out examples of how it's being used. It might not work for everything, it's not going to be appropriate for an aircraft carrier or a fighter jet, but it can be very appropriate for certain kits that need to get out there, some munitions, a variety of other things. So what we're going to do is work with DAU, again, to get examples of how you use that. And we're also going to roll out a comms campaign on what it looks like. So you have middle tier acquisition that's right there with Juons, GEONS, other transaction authorities, now middle tier, DOD 5000, business systems. It's my job to make sure the acquisition workforce understands how to use those and that industry knows the flexibility is there to use them as well. Other transaction authorities, again, have not been very widely used, and we only have a few areas um, within DOD that are really expert at it, um, Picatinny Arsenal is one of them. When you look, and we've had certain organizations um, that have used them effectively, DIUX has typically used them when there's a requirement that isn't totally clear. They can use OTAs to prototype and move forward. You also have Have a lot of cost sharing with industry available there. I think OTAs got a bad name back in future combat systems days and we tended to shy away from it. Well we're going to make sure people understand how to use them, we're writing an OTA handbook right now. But again, we need to come up with a primer on here are your acquisition authorities, here are your contract types you can use along with them. So, what we really want to do is create a platform that allows program managers to use the best acquisition pathway for their program and to be able to transition between the pathways as needed. We um, are taking this very seriously in the Pentagon. I'm actually briefing Secretary Mattis quarterly on what we're doing with these authorities. And um, we are meeting regularly with the service secretaries and chiefs so they know what we're doing. All right. Let's move on and um, talk about reducing time to execute once you pick um, the right acquisition authority, right contract type. One of The issues we have is it often takes two to three years to actually get on contract. And what we've done is created an acquisition streamlining tool to enable use of best practices across the enterprise. It's called the Streamlining Toolbox. And it's got 40 proven real-world techniques that streamline the acquisition process without compromising the quality of the deal. Again, we're rolling these out, we're teaching them so that people understand them. We have, pilots that the military services have nominated that we're actually running these different processes through. So right now, um, we are establishing a PULT tracking system for systems greater than $100 million. Because right now, again, this comes back to our data challenge, we don't have a way of tracking these systems across the entire enterprise to understand what our metrics are for Getting on contract. All right, SoCOM has shown the ability to tailor their acquisition approach to focus on critical deliverables and shortened cycle times for acquisition speed. As a result, SoCOM is leading the way in delivering significant mission capability with reduced costs and lower risks. How have they done this? Commercial prototyping. and use of industry open standards. This drives competition, and competition is our friend in government as well as in industry. What I want to do is for more procurements, get the requirement out there at the highest level possible, and then have industry bring their systems and have flyoffs, have dry-offs, have drive-offs, shoot things. Let's cut the cycle time and just see what is out there. In this way, I think what we really do is reward industry for investing their internal research and development. I think a great example of this is the Army CH-47 Block II upgrade, where they leverage several SOCOM aviation-initiated upgrades. Um, Army's pursuing a new single fuel tank with external replaceable pumps and new composite pods and an improved SOCOM-initiated improved drivetrain, a modified, upgraded aft transition. Great example where the Army leveraged what SOCOM was doing. I believe the broader DoD acquisition community needs to remain engaged with their SOF SOCOM counterparts and, where feasible, learn from and adopt the innovative acquisition methods that SOF and SOCOM have really pioneered. So I would like to close by thanking each of you and our entire soft community for your selfless service and sacrifice in defense of our nation. My unrelenting commitment is to ensure you have what you need, when you need it, to defend this great nation. Finally, to our fallen, whose sacrifice we honor year round and not just one weekend, we will never forget. Thank you again for inviting me. And have a great conference.